Before I get started here, uh, I just want to remind this church family that I believe this Sunday, um, in terms of a meal, is the last Sunday that we'll see a dear family, the Dominici's. Does that sound about right? So uh, they'll be here with us about two more Sundays, and then the Lord is going to move them to South Georgia, I believe, to be near family. And it's great to hear that the Lord hears our prayer. Brother and sister, we will greatly miss you and your sweet family. We'll continue to pray for you and pray that the Lord sustains you. He's sovereign, and we trust and rest in that. So make sure you hug their neck and shake their hand today, Lord willing. Let me pray for us. Father, we are your people by your grace. And we ask you, Lord, to be with us. You've promised to do so. And Father, you have given us your Holy Spirit, God of every God, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And we pray, O Lord, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word and eyes to see the beauty of Christ and a heart that's inflamed for the glory of God. Many of us today, Lord, including myself, we are tired after a long week. But Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and carry us and sustain us. Help us to leave this place saying it was good to be in the house of the Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. In the 1800s, there was a Christian by the name of Robert Murray McShane. He was a pastor. He was an evangelist. He was an evangelical. He was also a pioneer missionary to America. He was from Edinburgh, Scotland. And when it came to prayer, and prayer referring to Christ, what Christ has done for him, he says this. He has an interesting quote. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for me. I hope as Bible-believing Christians, when we read the Word of God, especially in Hebrews, that we understand and we are resting in that Christ prays for us, that he intercedes for us. And this is what McShane is referring to, that Christ intercedes, that he prays actually for his people, for those who draw near to the Father through Jesus Christ. There's a very specific group here. And Jesus prays for his people. We are in Luke chapter 6 in verses 12 through 16 entitled praying for the 12 and the main point that I want to get across today is prayer reveals our dependence upon God and it is critical prior to any ministry prayer reveals our dependence upon God and it is critical prior to any ministry I hope that main point or even that thesis would sink and resonate within our own hearts, that we would think deeply about today's text. In the background of this text, in the first 11 verses, Jesus has a confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. The disciples are hungry, and they grab the heads of wheat, rub them in their hands, eat them. And the Pharisees and scribes says, How dare you violate the law? And Jesus confronts their legalism, and the conclusion 
is this, that Jesus has all authority to interpret the law of God and apply it. Jesus has all authority to interpret the law of God and apply it, especially in a situation like this where there's a serious and legitimate need. And what is that need? Hunger. The hunger of his people. To be exact, the hunger of his disciples. Jesus also has all authority to heal a man. He heals a man with a withered hand, an immobilized, paralyzed right hand, and Jesus heals this man. Why? Because Jesus has all authority to heal. This idea of authority or this theme or motive of authority starts all the way back to Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. This is a confrontation between Jesus and the devil. In verse 5, it says this. Luke chapter 4, verse 5. It says this, And the devil took him, talking about Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is the second temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 6, And he said to him, referring to Jesus, To you I will give all this, what? Authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Verse 7, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So in the second temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the devil tempts Jesus that if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the authority above all these kingdoms. So the idea and theme of authority starts early in the Gospel of Luke, and it continues on in who has the authority over the kingdom, who has authority to heal, who has authority to interpret God's law and apply it, who has authority to save God's people. That's where we're heading in the storyline. There's only one person who has that authority. That's Jesus the Christ. So in today's text, we will see that Jesus has also the authority to call his disciples to be more specific, his apostles. There's a difference between disciples and apostles, which I'll address here momentarily. But you'll see in your bulletin, point number one. There's two points to this sermon. Point number one is verse 12, dependent upon prayer. Read with me in verse 12. In these days, he, referring to Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night... He continued in prayer to God. So shortly after this confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes, we have this situation. And Jesus has gone up to a mountain to pray. This is not the first time Jesus has done this. Jesus has done this throughout the Gospels at different times. And so why a mountain? Well, normally a mountain is not scoured with people. In other words, a mountain is usually a quiet place a quiet place to be with God. There are no people and no interruptions. A month ago, I preached a sermon on prayer. It was entitled, The Praying Savior. The Praying Savior. I'm not going to re-preach that entire sermon, but I want to encourage all of us that no matter what we hear about prayer from the Word of God, we should be people who are humble enough to say, we need God. We always need God. We should be people who should never be tired of hearing about our need to pray. 
Because when God's people pray, it reveals our dependence upon God. Upon God. Jesus is our model for prayer. Jesus shows us how to pray. Jesus also shows how we are to be dependent upon God in prayer. And if Jesus is dependent upon prayer, what does that say about us? We should be people who are dependent upon God as well in prayer. The Bible is very clear that Christians are praying people. The church of the living God, the New Testament church, moves forward when God's people humble themselves, bow their hearts and their knees to God in prayer. The church advances in prayer. An English Puritan in the 1600s by the name of Thomas Manton, he says this about prayer and the church. Quote, Shall we think ourselves not to need that help that Christ would submit unto? There are many proud persons that think themselves above prayer. Christ had no need to pray as we have. He had the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily, yet he was not above prayer. If you have the Spirit of God, you will do likewise. The point of his quote is Christians pray. Christians see their need of God. Christians are dependent upon God. Brother Michael, can you turn that down a little bit? It seems like I'm in a vacuum right now. So prayer is speaking with God, talking to God, communicating with God. God the Father is a real person. The biblical position on prayer is that we as Christians and we as a New Testament church pray to God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's biblical prayer. That's Trinitarian prayer. And so prayer is talking to the Lord. Many times we pray to the Lord because we need somebody to talk to, which is good, right, and proper. Many times we pray to the Lord because we need help. We're in anguish. We're going through trials and tribulations. We're going through difficulties in life. And so prayer reveals our dependency upon God. Did you notice how long Jesus prayed? It says that he prayed all night. If you scour the entire New Testament regarding this type of language, there is no other place in the New Testament where Jesus has prayed all night. What you see in Luke chapter 6 is the only recording of that. So when we think about prayer, and we think about our need of prayer, and we think about that we are dependent upon God, it's good and right and proper that we should pray, but when we pray for five minutes and we turn around and pat ourselves on the back and think highly of ourselves, because we've prayed for five minutes during our lunchtime. I'm not saying that's wrong. But when we look at Jesus praying all night, what does that say about our prayer lives? If we say as God's people that prayer is dependence upon God and we pray little, that means we need God little. But Jesus prayed all night, which shows what? That Jesus needs the Father's help. 
So we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves when we pray for five or ten minutes, even though I would encourage you to pray. You have to start somewhere. But think about this. Jesus prayed roughly from six o'clock at night till five in the morning. And this type of prayer requires discipline. This is not accidental. This is intentional. This requires energy. This requires sacrifice. This requires strength that comes from the Lord. The Bible's clear that Jesus prayed often. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray and to be persistent in prayer. Now, does the Bible command us as Christians to pray all night? The Bible doesn't command us to do that. The Bible does command us to pray, to be praying people. But we can learn something from our Savior's dependence upon the Lord. He is resolute and committed in prayer. Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is completely dependent upon God the Father. Jesus is one person with two natures. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. And in his deity, Jesus' godliness, if I can say it that way, his deity... Jesus is all-knowing. He's omniscient. Jesus is God. The Bible is very clear in John chapter 1. However, in Jesus' humanity, he is fully human. He is physical body with a soul. And in his humanity, he is completely dependent upon God the Father. And why does Jesus pray like this? Because in the morning, in a Short 11, 12 hours, Jesus is going to make a major decision. He's not simply going to choose his disciples. He's going beyond that. He's going to actually choose his apostles. His apostles. It seems that Jesus is praying for each and every disciple. But in the morning comes a major decision. Because the apostles will be recorded in all of Scripture to be the leaders of the New Testament church and the foundation of the New Testament church. And the role of the apostles is critical. If you fast forward to Luke chapter 9 and you read those verses, the first two verses of Luke chapter 9, Jesus will send out these apostles into the world not only to heal the sick and not only to bring spiritual healing per se, from demon possession. He will exercise, they will exercise demon-possessed people. But more than that, these apostles will proclaim the kingdom of God. They're going to deliver a message that comes from heaven to the world. This is a heavenly message to proclaim the kingdom of God. So this decision to establish New Testament leaders and the foundation of the New Testament church is not a minor decision on a minor scale, but a major decision on a major scale. Think about this. What happened in Jerusalem, and you fast forward all these years to where we're at today, that the gospel spread from this Jerusalem to Judea, to the Mediterranean world, to all of Europe in northern Africa and throughout Africa, and America. Is that amazing how the gospel came to American shores? 
And at the right time, God orchestrated that the gospel would be presented to you, either through an individual Christian or through church preaching or through a street preacher. It's amazing when I think about how the world was turned upside down and that gospel spread throughout the world and you heard it and I heard it. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So this decision is of utmost importance. But when we think about prayer, how is our prayer lives? We're two months into a new year. We're about to start the month of March, the third month of the year. Normally what happens is at the end of December and the first week of January, Pastor Rolo, I'm excited for the new year. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. And roughly right about now, we have fallen off the wagon. How's our Bible reading? How's our prayer lives? Do we see our need of God? If you see your need of God, you'll pray more. But if you don't see your need of God, you won't pray more. You'll try to live out this Christian life in your own strength, in your own zeal, in your own ways. And the prayers that we do pray, when we pray in that type of state, our prayers are simply obligatory and ritual at that point. Many times our prayers are just dead prayers because our hearts are cold. Cold as ice. And hard as a rock. We need prayer, God's people. Do you pray to the Lord in only the big decisions and leave out the Lord in your minor decisions? We should be people of prayer, praying that God would help us with every decision of life. That we would submit our will to His will. That we are dependent people. That we are needy people. That we need God's help day to day to day. J.C. Ryle is an English Anglican in the 1800s, and he has an interesting quote about prayer in the church. And he says this, quote, Any church calling itself the house of God and failing to magnify prayer, which does not put prayer in the forefront of its activities, which does not teach the great lesson of prayer, should change its teaching to conform to the divine pattern, or change the name of its building to something other than a house of prayer. In other words, what J.C. Ryle is saying is that prayer to the Christian, especially to the Christian church, is absolutely critical, necessary, and important. And a church that does not focus on prayer should change its name. I think that's convicting. I do want to say this, that the pastoral team and the Christians that attend the 130 corporate prayer meeting, we've been praying for years, if we're to be honest, that God would add people to this corporate prayer meeting. Why? Because we're showing our dependence upon God. And God has blessed this meeting. If you remember, those of you who were in there last week, There was not a seat available. It was the biggest group I've seen in a very long time in the life of this church of God's people humbling themselves in corporate prayer. They're showing their dependence upon God. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, keep 
praying individually. Keep praying with your church family. We need God. We need Him now more than ever. Quit living the Christian lifestyle in your own strength. Keep praying, God's people. Keep praying. We are His people by His grace. Amen? And we need to be in prayer. Which leads to point number two. The twelve. Verses 13 through 16. Read with me. Verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. It's interesting, after nearly 11 hours of prayer, Jesus calls a meeting. At this point, most people fall asleep at 5 in the morning because they've been up all night. But not Jesus. He sees the importance of what is about to happen. The text does not state how many disciples that were there. But Jesus obviously calls his disciples together. And from this group of disciples, Jesus chooses 12, chooses only 12, 12 apostles. In the New Testament, this language of 12 refers to the apostles, and the apostles refer to the 12. Those two words are synonymous. And in the Bible, these apostles, some of them are more prominent than others. And what that means is in the Bible, there is more information or biblical data for some apostles as opposed to other apostles. There's just more information recorded for some than others. And these 12 apostles represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel. And we see that in Revelation 21, 13, and 14. But it's important to make a distinction here. What is a disciple? A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus Christ. I've committed to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. So if that's you, we are disciples. But an apostle has a slightly different definition. An apostle is obviously one who is sent out with a message. What kind of message? A message that comes from heaven. This message is the glorious gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what separates a disciple from an apostle is this, that an apostle is one who has seen Jesus face to face. They are personally commissioned by Jesus. That is the difference. So Saul, who became Paul in the New Testament, became an apostle. Why? Because on the road to Damascus, he had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. He was personally commissioned by Jesus, chosen directly by Jesus. Now, if you've been paying attention to what's happening on the Internet, there are many crazy people, and I mean that with all of my heart, who say that I, referring to them, am an apostle. I have great a great disagreement with that. They are not apostles. 
They are not capital A apostles. Unless they can prove that they had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus the Christ. Which they can't. They're separated by time and space. So modern day apostles don't exist. Why? Because the person and work of Jesus is complete and it's recorded in the Bible. In other words, the canon referring to the scriptures is closed. It's closed. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 39 and 27. Last time I checked, it's 66 books. We are not expecting a 67th book. So the canon, the entirety of the Bible, is complete. It is sufficient. It is enough. We don't need apostles to verify the Bible. We have the Bible. We have the very word of God. Therefore, there is no modern-day apostles. There are no capital-A apostles. I know some have heartburn with that statement. But we need to say what the Bible says. And when the Bible is silent, we are silent. But the Bible is not silent on this issue. There are no modern-day apostles with a capital A. And this list of apostles that are documented in the Scriptures, they're listed and documented four times. Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 6, Acts chapter 1, Mark chapter 3. And what's interesting about this, these lists of apostles in the New Testament is that the list always starts with Peter. And the list normally ends with Judas Iscariot. So Peter is usually listed first, and Judas Iscariot is usually listed last. And how did these individuals become apostles? Did they look up Indeed or Jobs.com and fill out a resume and an application and say, I would like to be an apostle? No, they did not. They did not initiate it. They did not look for Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the great initiator. Jesus is the one who called them and chose the 12 apostles personally. And you see a short list in your bulletin. By all means, this is not an exhaustive exposition of every single disciple. But there's things in this list that we should be aware of regarding apostles. Simon, who is now named Peter, we know him as Simon Peter. Many scholars believe that Peter has prominence in the New Testament church as a leader because of what he's done in his ministry, but also because he's listed first in all four of these listings in the New Testament. He is a leader of the apostles, according to Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus named Simon Peter. Who changes names in the Bible? God changes names in the Bible. So Jesus is doing something that God has done in the Old Testament. A name in the Bible actually means something. A name in the Bible usually refers to the person's character and the person's reputation. 
And God is the one, and in this case, God in Christ is the one who changes the name of Simon to Peter. What was Peter's occupation? He's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. The next person, Andrew, this is Peter's brother. According to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, he's another fisherman. The next person, James. He's the son of Zebedee. According to Matthew 4.18, he's also another fisherman. Then we have John. John. According to Matthew 10, verse 2, he's the brother of James. And so if that's the case, James and John are obviously brothers. But he's also another fisherman. I want you to see a theme here of who these people are and what they do for a living. He's another fisherman. Then we have Philip. He's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, according to John chapter 1, verse 43. We have another apostle by the name of Bartholomew, literally translated the son of Talmai. And his name only appears in these lists these four lists throughout the New Testament. But he might go by another name or a nickname by the name of Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 45. Then we have another apostle by the name of Matthew. Does that ring a bell? Because we talked about Matthew, known as Levi. Levi, the tax collector. He's a revenue officer. He's a cheat and a liar. He's stealing money from people. So we have fishermen and we have corrupt tax people. He's the son of Alphaeus. And James and Levi are brothers. Then we have Thomas. What is Thomas known as? Doubting Thomas. What a pitiful name throughout church history. (laughs) Doubting Thomas. In John chapter 20, Jesus was raised from the dead. He's resurrected. He meets with the disciples. All the disciples witness the alive, risen Savior Jesus after the cross, after death, after burial. The one person that was missing was Thomas. And about eight days later, the disciples meet again. The text is very clear that they meet in a room with a door, and the door is closed and locked. What does that mean that the door is closed and locked? It means that the door was closed and locked. That's what it means. And Jesus shows up on the scene. I don't know how he does it. My finite brain can't handle that type of information. But he shows up. Maybe he walks through the door. And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, come here. Look. Put your hand on these nail-pierced hands and on my side. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Jesus is God. My Lord and my God. Then we have James, the son of Alphaeus. And then we have another interesting apostle here, Simon. 
Simon the Zolotes, Simon the Zealot. What is he zealous for? He's zealous for the law of God, and he's zealous for God. Before Simon the Zealot was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was a political nationalist. He was a political nationalist. In 6 BC, Rome was the world power. 31 years later, in 37 BC, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, installed Herod the Great over Judea. And when Herod the Great became the leader, so to speak, over Judea, that marked the end of Jewish independence. And at that time, there was this group called the Zealots. And the Zealots refused to bow the knee to the Roman Empire. And they would fight the Roman Empire, even to the death. And that's actually what happened to them. Because in A.D. 70, Rome crushed them. Rome crushed the Zealots. So Simon the Zealot could be nicknamed appropriately Simon the Patriot. Simon the Jewish Patriot prior to following Jesus. Then we have Judas, the son of James. This is not Jewish uh, Judas Iscariot. This is another Judas. But he also goes by a possible nickname of Thaddeus in Mark chapter 3, verse 18. And the last apostle, recorded in all of eternal history as the traitor. Judas Iscariot, the traitor. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He regretted that decision once they arrested Jesus and the decision was made to kill Jesus and crucify him on the cross. Judas Iscariot tried to give them 30 pieces of silver back to the religious elite. And they said, what, is, what do we have to do with this money? This is your money. You accepted this money, this dirty money, this bribe money, this corrupt money money. And so Judas kills himself. He commits suicide. He can't handle what he had just done. And Matthew Henry says this about Judas Iscariot, the traitor. He was so privileged that yet he had a devil and proved a traitor, yet Christ, when he chose him, was not deceived. I find that statement absolutely interesting. Nothing catches Jesus by surprise. He chose Judas Iscariot knowing that Judas would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus called and chose these apostles known as the Twelve. This word called in verse 13 of Luke 6. Luke 6 verse 13. The word called is a word that is an authoritative demand. It is a powerful demand. It's an authoritative demand to present yourself and participate. When we think about this, that's exactly what happened. Because in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus calls Levi or Matthew. Do you remember that? Jesus sees Levi, the tax collector. He says, follow me. What does Matthew or Levi say in response? No, 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 Lord Jesus, time out. Let me think about this for a few minutes. Let me go talk to my family. Let me 
do this task and that task before I follow you? No. The text is very clear. He stood up and followed Jesus. He left everything. He left everything to follow Jesus. This is the type of demand that we're talking about, this word called, this authoritative demand to present yourself and participate. And so before these apostles were called in real time and real space to follow Jesus, they were chosen to be his apostles. They were chosen to be his apostles. This is not an accident. This is intentional. They were called and they were chosen to be messengers of the glorious gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. They did not choose themselves. Christ chose them. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus talks about his disciples in general. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Did you hear what Jesus said? He says to all the disciples, you think you chose me. In reality, I chose you. I chose you so that you would go out and bear fruit. This is not about does the disciples have will. Do they have a will? You have a will and I have a will. That's not the question. And we're not even talking about free will. What this is all about is that Jesus' will supersedes their will. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the one who has all authority to initiate someone to come to him. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus who is sovereign. That Jesus who is the Lord. Jesus has the authority to summon someone, summon someone to them. The original choice belongs to Jesus The initial choice belongs to Jesus. The saving choice belongs to Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about if a man or woman has a will. We're talking about whose will is sovereign. So when we think about redemption in the storyline of the Bible, the Bible has four main themes. Four. Creation. Fall. Redemption and new creation. Those are the four major themes or the storyline of the Bible. Creation, God created. Fall, mankind sinned against the holy God. Redemption, is God going to save his people? Yes, he will. And then new creation. When the new heaven is established. So when we think about this redemption storyline, why is Judas Iscariot listed? in all of these recorded documents in the Bible. Why is he even listed as a traitor? It's because God ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. If Jesus is going to save his people, if Jesus is going to redeem his people, prayer is required. Let's go back to the beginning. Prayer is required, but number two. Judas has to betray Jesus to get him arrested, to go through a kangaroo court, to get him nailed to a cross. God ordains the ends. God ordains the means. 
God chose Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He's the means to get Jesus to the cross. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, who does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like the Lord's Supper? Who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is prophesied in the Old Testament that Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus. And so there are many people out there who are naysayers, I would even say haters of the Bible. And they say, well, I can't believe the Bible for this reason, that reason, or another reason. But Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, silver is actually encouraging to me. Because if you look at any president, you look at any prime minister, you look at any religious leader throughout human history, and you read their autobiography, what you hear and what you read is how great they are. They tell you about the positives, but they never tell you about the negatives. What am I saying? Is that they're more interested in reputation in human history as opposed to truth. And the Bible does not try to whitewash this. The Bible does not try to hide this. The Bible is very clear that Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. His own disciple, an apostle. That should be encouraging to us. That the Bible, what it says, is true. It's correct and accurate, faithful. So the Bible when we think about this, the Bible describes these 12, these apostles, as not strong and mighty men. Not the smartest, not the most brilliant, not the most gifted. The Bible describes these apostles as fearful men. The Bible describes these men as those who denied Jesus at the most darkest time in history when Jesus was crucified on a cross. The Bible describes these apostles as men who scattered across the area and region. When we think about this, the world, according to the world standard, these men were nobodies. These men were average. As a matter of fact, these men were below average. Yet these men changed the world with the gospel. These men were used by God. These men were chosen by God and called by God to present a message that comes from heaven. And they changed the world. J.C. Ryle, I'm going to quote him again, the Anglican bishop. He says this, quote, All these twelve were apparently unlearned and ignorant men. All were poor, a religion that turned the world upside down while its first preachers were all poor men. The world looks at these apostles, these 12 men chosen by Jesus as poor, uneducated, unworthy of any sort of status. And how was the world turned upside down? By the gospel of grace in Christ. 
That message turned the world upside down. God uses the weak in the world to confound the wise. That's how God operates. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this about God using the gospel to bring the lowly unto himself. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In this text, there's a contrast or a difference between the world's wisdom and the gospel. And the world says to preach a message about Jesus is foolishness. Why would you ever preach about a dead Jewish Messiah? That's how the world looks at Jesus. The gospel is at odds with worldly wisdom. The Jews demand signs, as the text says prior to these verses. And the Greeks seek worldly wisdom. But we, Paul says, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Greeks. Did you hear that? It's a stumbling block. The crucifixion of Jesus is a stumbling block to Jews and Greeks. So salvation that comes from God is a salvation that's based in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived for his people. Jesus died for his people. Jesus was buried and raised for his people. Yet the world calls this folly and foolishness. But Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, there is a distinction between what the gospel is, according to the Bible, versus what the world's wisdom is. And what God does is God brings his people unto himself in unconventional ways. Unconventional ways. Not according to the world's standard. He doesn't bring sinners unto himself who are the most brilliant, educated men and women of the world. He doesn't focus on that. The Lord doesn't bring those who are influential and important in the world, even though that happens. The Lord doesn't focus on those who have noble birth or high status in the world. He brings the lowly, he brings the poor unto himself through the gospel. The hope of any sinner is the hope of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And the Lord brings all of these people unto himself through Christ. How does that happen? By way of faithful proclamation. By Christians. By churches that are faithful to the gospel. Poor Christians. These poor Christians are just like us when we came to Christ. We're spiritually broke. Spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bust. And yet God's grace came to who? Came to you and me. Came to us. So the gospel saves and brings people just like these poor apostles. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 talks about the power of God is perfected in weakness. Paul says, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul talks about a vision that he received. And that this vision of a man, which I believe he's referring to himself, went into the third heaven. In the Bible, the first heaven is where the birds and the clouds are at. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is where the stars and the moon are at. And if you go beyond that, that's the third heaven. That is the primary abode of God the Father. The third heaven. So Paul has this vision of this man caught up in the third heaven. And he decides, I'm not going to boast in that. But he's going to boast in his weakness. And so that Paul is not puffed up with pride, a thorn was given to Paul. Throughout all of church history, there's no consensus, there's no agreement Is it a physical ailment, what that thorn represents? Is it from Jewish persecution or constant harassment? Or is it from a harassing demon? There's no agreement on that in church history. But what's important to note is this, that the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. That should be encouraging to us because we are like these poor apostles. In many, many respects. And yet, whatever we're going through, trials and tribulations and difficulties, God, His grace is sufficient for us. It's adequate when we are weak, when we're facing trials. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God's purpose is accomplished in our weakness. And so what's the point of all this? What the, whatever the world thinks is right, God does the exact opposite. God uses those that the world thinks are fools. God uses them to accomplish his perfect purposes in the world. God brings salvation to his people through the most mediocre people the world has ever seen. And his perfect purposes are accomplished in our weakness. Do you believe that God is sovereign? God is sovereign. The Bible is very clear. And as Christians, that doctrine of God's sovereignty should always encourage us. Encourage us. We should rest in that, knowing that God is sovereign, that God directs human history exactly where it needs to go, where it will be at the right place at the right time. We can rest in that. There are no accidents with God. There are no surprises with God. There are no coincidences with God. God is in control. God is the one who calls. God is the one who chooses his disciples. He's the one who calls his apostles. He's the one who establishes his church. He's the one who establishes leaders in the New Testament church. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And even choosing Judas Iscariot, this betrayer, God chooses him because It leads to the crucifixion of Jesus, which leads to our salvation. Acts 4.13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. All of Scripture looks to these apostles as uneducated common men. But listen to this, And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The reason that the Sanhedrin and the religious elite looked at these uneducated fishermen, 
these lowly people with astonishment is because they came to the conclusion that these people talk with authority. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They've been changed by Jesus. They've been called by Jesus, chosen by Jesus, serving Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And so Peter and John, they proclaimed this glorious message to the people that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The Sanhedrin, the people don't like that. Those who are in control, 5,000 people are saved because the gospel is being preached with boldness. God changed these fishermen. God changed these apostles. God changed the lowly to be bold, courageous men for the sake of truth, for the glory of God. Is that us? Is that you? Is that me? Has God changed us? I pray that that's true. Because there is no other name given among men where we must be saved. Only in the name of Christ. The name of Christ. The world looks at these men as uneducated. As I conclude here, Ryle says this about these lowly, uneducated fishermen. Quote, A few lowly Galileans shook the world and changed the face of the Roman Empire. One thing only can account for this. One thing can only account for this. The gospel of Christ, which these men proclaimed, was the truth of God. One reason that we don't share the gospel like we should is because we don't believe it. Think about that. Because when you believe something with all of your heart, you tell people no matter what. No matter the cost, no matter the time, no matter the location. And if we do believe it, and we ask God to help us, He will help us. He will help us. This is a true statement. We must never forget that Christ Jesus prayed for His apostles prior to turning the Roman Empire on its head, turning the world upside down. How did Jesus pray for the apostles? He prayed for them fervently, sacrificially. He committed prayer for this great task that it's at hand. Remember, prayer reveals our dependence upon God. Are you praying little? Then you depend upon God little. If you're praying much, it shows that you're dependent upon God very much. But Christ prays for us according to Hebrews 7. He intercedes for us, for those who draw to the Father through Christ. Christ prays for them. He intercedes for them. Christ chose us before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1. And Christ called us through the gospel of grace. And we followed and continue to follow him by his grace, through his word, and by the aid of the Holy Spirit. I know that I've said there are no modern-day apostles with a capital A in the world because there's no need because the Bible is complete and sufficient. But I want to say this. There are apostles in the world with lowercase a. Lowercase a. Apostles are those who are ambassadors of Christ. Lowercase a apostles are those 
who know the gospel, love Jesus, and share the gospel with others. We are lowercase apostles, lowercase a, apostles. We are the ones who have been commissioned by Christ to make disciples of all the nations. As Christ sent out the capital A apostles, Christ sends us out as a church body in the New Testament, lowercase a, apostles. We still have a job to do. God has called us. Christ sends us out. As we leave here this morning and you walk out the front entrance, I want you to pay attention to the banner that's above the front doors as you walk out. Most of us haven't read it, but we need to read it today as we walk out. And it says this, you are now entering the mission field. You are now entering the mission field. We've heard a good word from the Lord, a challenging word at times, a rebuking word at times, an encouraging word at times. But once we go out these glass doors, we are now entering the mission field. And if we're called to make disciples, that presupposes that we are sharing the gospel with others. But you cannot do this, and we cannot do this in our own strength. We need God's help. That's why we need to be praying. We need to pray like Jesus prayed. Not per se all night, but we need to be committed to sacrificial, constant prayer. Because apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. Sermon in a sentence. The church and the Christian who is committed to prayer consistently and sacrificially reveals their dependence upon the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we heard. We thank you, O God, that you gave us Christ. And because you gave us Christ, we know that you love us. And we thank you, O God, that we have a Savior who intercedes for us, prays for us. Lord, and you've called us to be a praying people. And we thank you, Lord, for in your word, you chose and called your apostles to build your church. And we stand on the shoulders of great men of the past. Lord, we ask you to help us to be a praying people. We know apart from you, we can do nothing. So be with us now. Help us, O oh God, to pray as we should and to share the gospel as we ought. Because you are all glorious and you are worthy. And we bless your great and mighty name. In Christ we pray. Amen.